Today's reading comes from Acts. Oh, sorry. Can you tell it's my first time? Chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. All right, we are in our last few weeks on the series on Acts. We've been going through um, the book of Acts, story of the early church and the spirit moving in them and how they were established. And originally, how we were going to do these last three weeks is we were going to take kind of part one, and in my mind, part one and part two of, of the story about Peter escaping from prison. And then there's a last story about Herod, King Herod dying, and that's how we we're going to finish out. That's what I had in my mind. But then I could not get past, so we're going to do verses 1 through 11. That's Peter escaping from prison. Then we're going to go on, kind of remind of the story, but then the rest of the story about Peter showing up uh, where the church was praying for him. And uh, I could not get past verses 1 and 2 particularly characters in verses 1 or 2 that stuck out for me. So a lot of the stories of the Gospels or story of Acts, if you just give me a little phrase, or I've got a little phrase in my mind that would get me the gist of the story, I would have most of it. So um, we've talked about uh, the Ethiopian convert. Okay, I would know we're talking about Philip, we're talking about the Ethiopian. If we, if we talked about the healing of the paralyzed man, I would think of John and Peter. Peter escaping from prison, or Peter's miraculous escape from prison, or an angel helping Peter escape from prison, all that, I got it. That's, that's kind of the gist of it. And so I would vaguely remember details from the first couple verses, but that wouldn't be the big issue. But as I read the first two verses, here's what I realized. I realized that what we're going to talk about for the next three weeks is actually one story. It's not a story and then another story about Herod. The whole thing is meant to be studied together, to be thought about together. So that was the first thing I realized, and I, I figured it out from the first two verses. And the second thing I realized is that this is a whole different angle of with wonder. So the Acts series, we did the first part of Acts uh, last summer, and now we've we're uh, been going at it for a while and about to finish up this summer. There's all kinds of stories that are just like, wow, if we were there at the time, and if we were just focusing on just that, what happened there, it is wow. If somebody has been not able to walk their whole life, and all of a sudden, just by a word, just by speaking in the name of Jesus, get up and walk, he gets up, he doesn't just like creak up, he's jumping, he's running, everybody was like, wow. We talked about this, someone's dead, raised back to life, come back to life, wow. Somebody is saying, hey, the people are being filled with God, I want that power, and all of a sudden they, they um, become blind, wow. 
What happened? There's these things that happen that are just wow. Last year we talked about people giving, selling their possessions, selling their money, giving it, everyone getting along. Wow. There is a wow in this story that I skip. Because what we're going to talk about next week is like an angel showing up and in maximum security prison, someone just being able to walk right out. And it's another wow. And my mind goes right to that when I think of this story. Wow. But when I stop and look at the first two verses and think about it for a while, I realize there's a completely different type of wow in this story. And as much as I want to be part of the, hey, someone was, someone was healed Someone came to know the Lord. Someone heard something that they never heard before, and someone else verified. Wow, I want to be part of those stories here and now, and God moving here and now. As much of that, this, this other angle, I'm a little bit more like, do I want to be part of that? Wow. But I think they're connected. I, and that probably makes no sense. It will make sense, I hope, by the time I'm done talking. So let's just go to first ver- the first verse. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Now, here's where I paused at this first verse. I realized that I hadn't paid much attention to the fact that it was King Herod who did this. Now, in the book of Acts, up to this point, there has been opposition to the early church. The apostles are trying to talk about Jesus. They are talking about Jesus. People are coming to know Jesus. People are gathering together in Jesus. And all of a sudden, authorities will come and arrest them. So when did this happen? It happened when Peter and John raised that paralytic. Then all of a sudden, the, it's the Sadducees and the priests, the leading Jewish people, seized them. They seized them, and they had them in jail, and then they had them on trial. And Peter says, you know, you decide. We can only do what God wants. You decide if you want to punish us for doing this kind of thing to this person. We can only do what God wants. But it was the Sadducees, it was the leading Jews, it was religious leaders who had authority, who had some power, but they were the ones who did it. A little bit later, the 12 apostles, the leaders of the church, are arrested by the Sadducees, the priests. That's who came against them, had them arrested, had them flogged, whipped, beaten, for speaking about Jesus, and then had them released. It was the Sadducees, it was the Jewish leaders. Then, a little bit later, we, t- we see Stephen. Stephen is speaking, Stephen is doing miracles, people are coming to know Jesus, God is real and alive in their midst, and it's the Sadducees. It's the Jewish leaders, it's the priests, it's these people that have C- Stephen seized, then put on court for the Sanhedrin, and then eventually stoned, executed. So all this time, it's the Sadducees, it's the Jewish leaders, it's the temple leaders, it's the priests, and now all of a sudden, it's Herod. And for me, it's like, yeah, you know, somebody's against them. But this is a whole other level. I mean, if the local Marion County Sheriff's Office is kind of against, you know, got you, going after you, whatever you get, that's not good. If the feds are looking into you, are watching you, are have something on you. That's a whole nother level. Herod is a whole nother level. Now, when we talk about Herod, it's, it can be a little confusing in the Bible because Herod keeps showing up, but that's like a last name. That's like a surname. 
So the first time we, we see a Herod, it's Herod the Great in the Bible. The first time it's Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was the one who tried to get Jesus killed, who killed every boy under two in the vicinity of Bethlehem at the time. That was Herod the Great, and he had a lot of territory. The territory went to three of his sons. He killed several of his other sons, but three of his sons, and they had different parts. And one of those, Herod Antipas, he was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. He was the one who made fun of Jesus and made jokes of Jesus and then became friends with Pilate. So that was a different Herod. This is third generation Herod. This is a, a nephew of these other Herods. But he had went to Rome, studied in Rome, been prepared in Rome, and was friends with the emperor, and he was given as much territory and even more than Herod the Great. So this is a, someone who's got Roman backing. This is a whole nother level. That's who's coming after him, is, is Herod. Now, I will, I will, the, let's go to the second verse. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. So Herod executed James, one of the 12, one of the apostles. Again, can be a little confusing because Peter's going to say a little bit later, hey, go tell James, but that's a different James. That's Jesus' brother who became a leader in the Jerusalem church. This is James, the apostle, and James is killed. And here's what I realize, is that I read this story, and I'm getting right to, like, Peter's going to get escape from prison. An angel's going to show up and escape from prison. And that's where all the energy's going in the story. And I just pass by, James is dead. James got killed. Right in the midst of this great thing that happened, it's fresh that one of their leaders was executed. One of their leaders is dead. And here's what I'm realizing Here's what that helped me to realize, is that these next three weeks, the passage we'll cover, we'll talk about different things, but one of what I have to pay attention to is that this story is a contrast. It's a contrast between Herod and the Jews, the, the Jewish leaders. It's, it's not great to say the Jews, that's misleading. It's Herod and the Jews that don't believe in Jesus, and it's Peter and the Jews, because 99% of the believers in Jesus in Jerusalem were Jewish, the Jews that did believe in Jesus, or the church. And here's what I, we're supposed to be, there's a big contrast happening. And the contrast is, what did Herod and these Jewish people want? Why were they acting the way they did? What, what were the decisions they were making? And why did Peter and James and the early church what did they want? And why were they making the decisions they did? And what kind, of, what kind of things were they doing? Now, we look at those two things and then we ask ourselves the question, who am I more like? Am I more like Herod? Am I more like these, these Jewish leaders? Or am I more like Peter? Am I more like the church? At that time. So, with that, let's look at verse 3. When he, that's Herod, saw that this met with approval among the Jews, killing James was, was approved by the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. So, Herod, 
Here's the deal. Herod the Great became king because Rome put a puppet king out there. The Jews hated him because he was a psychopath, partially, and he killed a bunch of people and he had people arrested, but also partially because the law, the Old Testament says, if you're, if you're not Jewish, you can't be the king of the Jews. But Rome said, Herod's the king of the Jews, even though Herod wasn't Jewish. So they hated him and they despised him. Now get to this Herod, the grandson Herod, and he has a, an, a complex. He wants to be accepted by the Jews. He actually does have a Jewish mother, but he's not sure he'll be accepted by the Jews. And he wants them to like him. He wants their favor. His job is to keep stability in a place that's constantly not stable. And so he needs these leaders to like him. And he, it's, it seems, if we get, when we get later on to the rest of the passage, he really wants everyone to like him. That's a big need of his, is for people to like him. But part of what's motivating him is that he does not want to lose what he's gained. He does not want to lose his status. He does not want to lose all the, the material things that come with it. He, he has to keep that. So he will compromise what's right. He will, he will compromise that to maintain his standard of living, to maintain where he's at, to keep people liking him. And that's very similar to the Jewish people because what we know historically about the priests and the Sadducees, the leaders of the temple, is that they were wealthy. They didn't believe that there was anything in the afterlife. They believed in just the here and now. So some of them were religious in the sense of what would religion and how would God be good for the here and now. Many of them were just fake religious, and they were lining their pockets. They were becoming wealthy as leaders. And so they, when Jesus came along, he was a threat to the status quo. He was a threat to their standard of living. He was a threat to their positions. He was a threat to, he was a threat to all of that. So he had to be killed. And then the apostles start upsetting the apple court. So they have to be arrested because when you have a lot to lose, you will hang on tight. These people had a lot to lose, and they didn't want to. What about us? They had a lot to lose, at whatever it takes to maintain. They would like even more. You know, Herod just kept getting a little more territory. He eventually, he went from... You know, I, don't, I just get a third of it. Do I get two-thirds of it? Do I get, do I get Jerusalem before he even his grandpa didn't have Jerusalem and Judea as part of it? Just always a little bit more. Always one more thing. Always that is what's driving them. What about Peter? Verse 4. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. This is massive security. Usually there were two guards. He's got four guards in a rotation, four times. He's got lots of guards. So, verse 5, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week, but I'm going to come back to the word earnestly because I think it factors into what's driving Peter. Verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentry guards stood at the entrance. So part of the reason we have this information is to just show there's a lot of security. I mean, usually you're chained to one guy, he's chained to two guys, and besides the two guys, there's other two guys outside. I mean, they are, they are totally securing him. 
But what strikes me about this is what Peter's doing. So going back to James, James and John, his brother, when Jesus was alive and they're with him, his mother came on their behalf with a request. When you take your place in the kingdom, when you take your throne, can my boys sit at your right and sit at your left? And the disciples are mad. They're partly mad because they want to sit to the right and left. How dare you get mom to do this for you? But anyway, Jesus' response is, hey, can you drink the baptism that I'm going to drink? Can you have the baptism? And they say yes. And he says, you're right. But it's not mine to give away the right or left positions. What did he mean by that, baptism? Are you willing to suffer the way I'm going to suffer? And they say yes. And there is a sense that they know eventually they're going to die. Not just like we all die, like they're going to be killed. And here it plays out. James died. And people are probably remembering, at least those apostles are probably remembering, Jesus said, would you be willing to die for me? And he did. Peter, in the book of John, after Jesus has rose from the dead, Jesus says to him, you know, when you were younger, you could go where you want, you could go, you, but when you're older, a time is coming where someone's going to take you where they don't want you to go, where you don't want to go, and stretch you out. And basically it said, it, the narrator says, he told him this to indicate the kind of death he would die. He would be executed. So now if I'm Peter, and James has just died because he's a follower of, of Jesus, and Jesus said, I'm going to die because of my following of him. And here I am in prison. you got to be thinking, Peter is, I'm going to die. I'm going to be executed. And he's sleeping. He's sleeping. He can just, I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into this. But if I'm going to, if I think I'm going to probably die tomorrow, I might not be sleeping. If I think I'm going to be executed, it's going to be painful, awful. I'm, but he's sleeping. I'm wondering how it is that some of us, maybe like Herod or the Jews, I don't want to. I don't want to lose this. I, 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 the anxiety. I don't. I, they better like me. If they don't like me, I, I can't sleep at night. I got oh. over sometimes little things. How can one sleep when they're going to suffer and die? Is what they think. Well, let's let's listen to Peter's words himself. So Peter wrote a letter to believers who were suffering, and in it. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, he says, Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. They don't live anymore for human desires, 
but for the will of God. So Peter says, you should have the same. Jesus suffered. He suffered even in his body. He suffered. You should be willing to suffer. We should have the same attitude. And there's a matter of perspective. Do I want what God wants? Is that what's most important to me? Or do I want what I want and what everyone seems to want? So, that's Peter. Now, I mentioned the word earnestly. The church was praying earnestly for him. That word earnestly is the same word describing how Jesus prayed in Gethsemane before he was crucified. He was praying earnestly. And what it reminds me of is what he prayed. Take this cup from me, but not what I will, but your will be done. Peter just said, not for human desires, not for what we think we want, we need, but God's will be done. That's his attitude, even if it means he's going to die. The reality is, he did die eventually. Executed. They all did. Jesus said, chapter 1, verse 8, I keep repeating it, but it's huge because it sets the whole course of this book of Acts and where the early church goes. He says to these people, you will be my witnesses. The Greek word for witnesses is, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, but martyros. Martyros. It's where we get the word martyr. To be a witness for Jesus is to say, It's not my life anymore. It belongs to God. I'm willing to die for him. So Galatians, uh, I don't remember, 2 verse 20. It's either 2 or 3 verse 20. Whatever I gave you, I'm pretty sure is right. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Jesus lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God has purchased me. God has won me. I don't live for myself anymore. I live for him. That's what that's saying. Here's one more. The Apostle Paul from Philippians. If you can give me Philippians. This is the attitude of these people in the early church. I eagerly, he's in prison right now. Paul is as he writes this. I eagerly expect and hope that I will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, this is the verse. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me, to live is Christ. I don't live for myself. I don't live for human desires. I don't live for the things I need to have or get or want or do. I live for Jesus because what's better is what's coming. He goes on to explain it more. Verse 22. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. Just go and keep advancing for me. I am torn between the two. I desire to part and be with Christ, which is better by far, but, for, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. A couple more. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So he's basically saying, I know it's better. I know what's coming. I know what God's promised for me, and it's going to be great. And at this point in his life, Paul has suffered. He has been beaten multiple times. He has been jailed multiple times. He has been rejected by people he loved. He has all of that going on. But that he, he just wants to advance. I want people to know Jesus. I want to know the, them to know the reality of God in their life. So he is already living this out. He's not living for himself. In fact, he is 
he is a brilliant, brilliant man who's a Roman citizen but also highly connected in the Jews, and he's a super hard worker because he earned enough money. He worked full-time in the ministry and yet somehow did tent-making where he earned enough money for himself. He, he could have been loaded. He could have been well-connected. He could have important positions. If he was living for the here and now, he would have had a great life as we consider it. But he put all that aside. In that same letter, he said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. He knew him. And the more he gave up for him, the more he came to know him. So, the question again is, are we more like Herod? Are we more like the Jews that didn't believe in Jesus who don't want to lose their anything? Don't want our standard of living to drop. Want to get our way. Want to make sure people like us, at least the right people, certain people. Or are we more like Peter in the early church that was willing to say, even if I have to sacrifice this, even if I don't get what I want, even if it costs me something, I want people to know Jesus. I'm going to live that way. Now, it could be easy to think, well, yeah, those Bible people, the people that live back in the Bible, they, of course, they did that. But the reality is, in the 20th century, I don't know 21st century statistics yet, but in the 20th century, more people died because of their faith in Jesus, were killed because of their faith in Jesus, than the previous 1900 years combined. And I was just reminded of this, in China, I remember reading I read sometimes about Chinese, the Chinese church there. Not missionaries to China, but the Chinese church. Here is a hymn that they have been singing for years and years over in China. It's called Martyrs for the Lord. So from the time the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost, the followers of the Lord have willingly sacrificed themselves. This is a song they sing. Imagine singing this song. Tens of thousands have died that the gospel might prosper. As such, they have obtained the crown of life, and then they get to the chorus. To be a martyr for the Lord, to be a martyr for the Lord, I am willing to die gloriously for the Lord. Those apostles who loved the Lord to the end willingly followed the Lord down the path of suffering. John was exiled to the lonely isle of Patmos. Stephen was stoned to death by an angry crowd. Matthew was stabbed to death in Persia by a mob. Mark died as horses pulled his two legs apart. Dr. Luke was cruelly hanged. Peter, Philip, and Simon were crucified on a cross. Bartholomew was skinned alive by the heathen. Thomas died in India as five horses pulled his body apart. The apostle James was beheaded by King Herod. Little James was cut in half by a sharp saw. James, the brother of the Lord, was stoned to death. Jesus was tied to a pillar and shot by arrows. Judas was. Matthias had his head cut off in Jerusalem. Paul was a martyr under Emperor Nero. I am willing to take up the cross and go forward to follow the apostles down the road of sacrifice that tens of thousands of precious souls can be saved. I am willing to leave all and be a martyr for the Lord. To be a martyr for the Lord, to be a martyr for the Lord, I am willing to die gloriously for the Lord. This is in a place where people have died for the Lord. Where people are still dying for the Lord. This is in a place, China, there's other countries as well, will send missionaries to North Korea. And when they go, they don't ever think they're coming back. 
For them to live is Christ, to die is gain. They just want people to know Jesus. So I'm looking at all that. I'm looking at just James was executed for the Lord. And it's hard for that to be accessible for me. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? I, if, unless I move to a different country, I'm probably not going to be imprisoned or killed for the Lord. But we can have Peter's ex, is his exhortation to us, his challenge to us, is to have the same attitude. And we can have an attitude that this life isn't about what I need to get, what I want, what I to maintain a certain level that I have now and make sure I don't lose it. But to live with open hands and live freely for him. A pastor that I really respect said recently that he, that this whole time of the pandemic, he has been very sobered because he said, at my church, I, I felt like we had some really deep-rooted disciples. But then his words to me, but what I realize now, we don't have almost anybody that would die for the Lord. How does he, why does he say that? Well, how many people told him, if I have to wear a mask, I'm out of here, and I'm never coming back? Now, can I say thank you to so many of you who had that same thought running through your head and yet graciously did it here? And we probably made mistakes on that. That's just one example. That's one example. He's giving multiple examples of unless it's easy, unless it's convenient, unless it's what I want, unless I like it, then no. Which is a very different attitude than you can have whatever you want. I'll suffer for you. I'll die for you. So how do we get the, that kind of heart? Because, for one thing, we should do it just because God loves us and gave himself for us, and, <clears throat> and we should give him our life based on that. But even besides that, even besides that, how do you sleep the night before you're going to die? How do you get that place? Well, if you got to have everything's got to be good and I then the anxiety kicks in all the time over little things and then I, I silent treatment or I flash off over the cuz I didn't get my way over little things. Here's what I would suggest. Can we will we find certain ways to say I'm not going to get what I want as a discipline. Here's an example. So, when I was a kid, teenager, I would get, I would sometimes just be really, I heard my mom telling someone else this. Yeah, he gets really angry and mean and irritable, and I just give him food. I just give him food, and then he's fine. It was pretty true. <clears throat> to which, that guy kind of ingrained that. I heard her say that multiple times, and just sort of said, like, well, yeah, that's what happens for me. When I'm hungry, and I need food, I get in a, in a bad mood, and that's just, it's okay. So I developed the discipline of fasting of not eating food for a period of time. Like, multiple days. So now I'm sitting there hearing my kids, like, I'm starving! I haven't eaten in three days. 
I'm starving. They just ate an hour ago. And what I learned is I learned I could be kind when I was hungry. I didn't, yeah, I felt good about myself too. Thank you for that clap. I didn't have to, but that's what disciplines are. If I had eaten, if I said I'm going to do a three-day fast and I had eaten after day one, which happened often, by the way, I failed more times than I succeeded. But if I did that, it's not like sinner. No, that's not what disciplines are about. Disciplines are about I'm going to do something for a season so that my heart changes and I'm able to, to be in a situation where when I'm hungry, or it translates into other things, when I don't get what I want, I can still be kind. I don't have to let that control me anymore. So some of us are shy. And some of us come into a place with this many people, and it's like, oh, I don't like being around this many people. And one of the ways that we could lay down our life for the sake of the Lord, is to one time this summer go talk to somebody here you don't know. Here's what we find. We find there are certain people who will say, sell, and this has been true for the last 10 years I'm here. Maybe it was not like this the 10 years before. But they will say, celebrate is the most welcoming place. <clears throat> From the moment I walked in, I felt at home. I felt the love. I felt this. I felt the kindness. I hear that often. When I say, what brought you to celebrate? Why do you stay at celebrate? That's one of the things that will come up to me. But I also hear often people say, I like, I like the church. Or I hear that this, someone else said that they told them this. I like the church. I like the music. I can stomach the teaching. You know, it's, it's, I felt like God was there. But nobody talked to me. Nobody talked to me. How do we do that? The newcomers thing, if you just if you come from two tw- from 2020, anytime from the beginning of 2020 till now, if you started coming, go to the newcomers thing. Even if you're like, well, I know people. Yeah, but maybe there's someone else who's looking to know people. It's a way to reach out to them. What are little things? Don't buy something. I am not gonna buy something. This some I could buy it, I want it, I'm not gonna buy it. Because what we have is like one-click gratification. And by one-click gratification, all of a sudden, if I don't get what I want, it's not good. But as soon as I get the one-click and I get it, within a day, there's something else I need. And then I'll be happy. Our hearts, our hearts have infinite desires. They have desires that just keep going and going. We want and we want and we want because what our hearts need is is a God who's infinite. And when we take the little gifts that he's given, but we don't look to him, then our hearts just keep needing more, keep needing more, keep needing more, not satisfied, and we go the opposite way. And, and this is strange. But when we will give up things for the sake of the Lord, our capacity for joy, our capacity for contentment actually goes up. So who do you want to be more like? Do you want to be more like Herod and the Sadducees and the people who were hanging on to power, had to have people like them, even if it meant compromising, even if it meant doing the wrong thing? 
Or do you want to be like Peter and the church? We're saying, it's not about what I want. It's about what God wants. If I have to give something up, if I have to not get my way, it's okay. I'm going to be okay. God loves me. He's for me. He's with me. He's got things in store for me that last forever that are way better than I could get here on this earth anyway. Which kind of person do you want to be? Let's pray. God, we can't be a person like Peter, a person like James, like the people in China. We can't be like that just from our own strength and our own choosing. We need to know you, to surrender to you, to give our lives to you. And so if there's any in this room that have not done that, have not fully surrendered to you, have not invited you, the one who died for them, the one who rose again, the one who promises forgiveness and eternal life. If there's any in this room who have not surrendered to you, received the gift you give of eternal life, of life with you forever. Would you let them know you're here now? Let them know of your grace. Let them know they can trust you. We would pray that same thing for the rest of us. Renew in us the knowledge that we can trust you, that you're for us, that you love us, and that we can surrender to you. And whether it's today, whether it's now in these next moments, or whether it's in the days to come, if there is a little discipline, something we should need to do, something we need to give up, at least for a season, would you make that clear to us? That we would become the kind of people that could sleep through the threats of life, that could be content even when we don't get our way, that could be focused more on giving than on obtaining. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name.